Okay. So let me just kind of explain real briefly um, how this night goes. First of all, my name is Drew, and, and I help run this, this college ministry along with Rachel Vincent right here, and then Scott yeah. Irwin in the back, and uh, a little bit louder cheers for Rachel than Scott, but I get that. Um, and so we, we, um, we kind of run this ministry together, and this is what these nights will look like. Just, you know, it's basically broken up into three different parts. Um, the first two are study, and, and they go like this. We'll spend the first section of the night, one of us will be up here, opening up the, the book of Mark is where we are this year, and we're going to do kind of the exegetical study of the text during that. Exegete means to pull meaning out, to bring meaning out of the text. So what we're going to be doing is walking verse by verse through the text that we're in, exploring things like the, the context the historical background, sometimes the original languages, um, the connection of the different words and how it all flows together, trying our best not to see what does this mean to me, but what did Mark mean when he wrote it? What did he want us to see and know about Jesus as he wrote these things about him? So we're going to do our best in this half to try and get to the bottom of that. And then in the next section, another one of us will step up here and, and they'll go into what we kind of call our theological slash applicational um, section. And, and that is we'll take kind of a larger theme from that text and dig into that a little bit more. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about us or, or what he's calling us to? And, and how do we live this out in our lives? And so that'll be the second half of this uh, night, or this, I say the second section. And then the third section is where we just bring food out here and we hang out. And, and that really isn't just an afterthought. That's kind of something we do when we're done. That is an important part of what we do here because we don't want this just to be a class. We want this to be a community. And, and so I, if, if you're new here, I really want to encourage you um, when we're done or when the study part is done, not to just rush out the door. We'd love to have you stick around a little bit. And, and introduce yourself to us and get to know you a little bit and, and eat some good food. What do we got tonight? Who brought stuff? Sweets. It'll be good. It'll be good. <laughs> no. That sounds legit. Um, okay, so without further ado, open up to Mark 10 and let me kind of, let me kind of uh, refresh your memory on a couple things as, as you're headed there. So, Mark, what we told you last semester, what we kind of mentioned over and over again is that on its most basic level, the Gospel of Mark can be broken into a really like, brief three-part outline. Kind of two-part, but sort of three-part. And that is you have the first section, which is um, Mark 1, 1 through 8. I want to make sure I get the exact verse right. 8.26. And the main idea of this uh, of, of this section is Jesus is the Messiah. So Mark builds his whole first half of this book driving towards this point by the actions that he describes of what Jesus is saying or, or doing and, and the things that he's teaching, the things that he's saying about himself. He's driving the reader towards this one idea, revealing the identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah, the anointed one of God. And then we get to this little section that is really kind of the what, what a lot of scholars call the linchpin or the, the hinge text of the whole gospel, and that goes all the way to either the end of 8 or 9-1. 
Um, and in this little section, what you have is Jesus talking to his disciples about who he is. And he asks, who do people say that I am? And they list off these things. Some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some people say whatever. And he says, but who do you say I am? And, and this is where we come to the culmination of this. Peter says, you are the Messiah. And this is the part where it is explicitly laid out. And then right on the heels of that, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says something that leads us into the second half of the book. And that is he tells his disciples, yes, I'm the Messiah. And now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to be, I'm going to be handed over into the leader's hands and I'm going to die there. And, and so that key, that little hinge text drives us into the rest of the book Mark 9 through 16, which is where we are now, and that is this. The Messiah must now, the Jewish concept, every understanding of what the people in the first century would have had, they would have been looking for a Messiah, waiting for him. There were a number of false messiahs who sprung up around this time and were either get, able to gather a following around them because the people were so anticipating Messiah. And so this would have been the message that they were all looking for. The Messiah must conquer. Okay? Mark's gospel is this. The Messiah must suffer. So Jesus is the Messiah is what he's been driving us towards. And now that you know who he is, let me tell you what he does. He suffers. Now, this is the cool thing. Hindsight 2020, we get to look back and see that actually he does do this. It's through his suffering that he conquers, though. He conquers in a way that nobody expected. And, and so that's what Mark will kind of drive us to. You'll also notice that from this shift, we're in 10 tonight. So we got into 9. We got in this back half right before the semester ended. But when we move into this last half, Mark slows down a lot. He gets a lot more intentional. So the first half of Mark covers about two and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The last half covers six months. So we've slowed down a ton as we get into this section. Also, we've talked about this word that is one of Mark's favorite that he uses over and over and over again. Do you remember what it is? Immediately. He, he, he uses this over and over and over again. And immediately and immediately and immediately he did this. Um, and so he uses that 35 different times in his gospel. Only eight of them come in the second half of the book. Um, most of that comes up front while he's moving quickly, but here things slow down. And, and here we are in chapter 10, and we get to, this is kind of a big text and, and covers a few different little stories here. I'm going to have Sarah on her first night back with us. Uh, I'm going to have Sarah read for us tonight. So, Sarah, can you do uh, Mark 10, verses 1 through 4 to start with me? Jesus then left that place and went into the reign of Judea and across the Jordan. <clears throat> Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
All right, so it says that they moved from there. The there that he was at was Capernaum, was where we, we saw him in chapter 9. That's in Galilee. He's now moved his way down to Judea, or maybe to it says, yeah, it's kind of confusing, and, and people aren't exactly sure what Mark is describing. If he's down in Judea and then crossed to the other side of the Jordan, or if he went the other side into Judea, we don't know, but he's in the southern part now. And, and while he's there, while he's down there, it says that these Pharisees come up and they ask him this question, teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Why this question? Why? Why? Now we know that they ask him a series of different questions, but why would they choose this question? Well, we don't know exactly, but we, we do know it appears when you look back at this time that, that um, thinking on this had grown pretty lax, that, that really... Um, Jewish men, now women, it was pretty unheard of for Jewish women to be able to like get a certificate of divorce, to divorce their husbands. But the men could divorce their women, and, and really the rabbis had gotten really loose on this, and they, they would let you divorce for about anything. And so um, divorce wasn't that crazy a deal. Um, and they knew this, that in Deuteronomy 24, this is the text that they mention, that Moses allows it, sort of. We'll see. And so uh, it, it could be that they know Jesus is probably going to come down hard on this, and maybe they're going to get a chance to catch him disagreeing with Moses, which would look bad. Here's another kind of interesting thought. This is the, the very same issue that got John the Baptist beheaded by Herod just a few months ago. Um, when John the Baptist spoke out against Herod because Herod had taken his brother's wife um, to, as his own wife, and, that, and John the Baptist called that adultery. That got him imprisoned, and that eventually got him killed. We know this also, that the Pharisees and the Herodians, ever since Jesus has stepped on the scene, now they have a common enemy. And so Mark 2 told us that they began to plot and work together. And so it could be that they're actually setting Jesus up with something that they think may get him in trouble with Herod. So they ask him this question. Jesus first turns and says to them, Probably knowing where they want to go, he says, you tell me, what, what does Moses say about this? And they say, Moses allowed it. He allowed you to give a certificate of divorce towards, um, to a woman. And, and, and this is what it says, Deuteronomy 24. I'll just read that text to you so you can know specifically what they're referencing. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if that latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God has given you for an inheritance. So this is the text that they're referencing. Moses said it's okay, Jesus, to give a divorce. Now notice this, you never actually see the phrase in Deuteronomy 24, you may divorce this woman. It, it, all Deuteronomy 24 actually does is assume that it's happening, and says, These, this is the protocol when you do to make sure that women don't get abused in this process. 
All Deuteronomy 24 is really doing is setting up kind of a protection with the recognition that there's going to be wickedness, that there's going to be people divorcing their wives and sending them away. But you can't, once you divorce her, you have no more rights to her. You can't just bring her back when you change your mind. You can't, just, you can't just send her away and take her back and send her away. No, no. Once you divorce, think long and hard about that because you have no more rights to her is what Deuteronomy 24 says. But, but this was a large text, or they built a lot on this text, and it says if he finds some indecency, and that became a really broad term for them. Like anything could mean some indecency, and they were um, allowing a lot of divorce for that reason. Here's Jesus' response to this. Read verses 5 through 9, Sarah. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All right, this is a really important text and something very interesting. Jesus says, the truth is, Deuteronomy does, in a sense, allow for divorce. God does, in a sense, allow for divorce. But Jesus says, allows is different than once. Okay? God allows divorce is not at all the same as saying he wants. It's a concession because of your hard hearts. And so he put into place some practices to offer some protections because of your hard hearts. Jesus offers a really different way at looking at morality. Whereas um, our natural instinct a lot of times is to think, um, what is the least that I need to do in order for God to be happy with me? Or what am I allowed to do in order to be okay with him? Here's like an example of this. And, and maybe, maybe you guys aren't there yet because you don't have jobs. Or hopefully if you do, you're, you're practicing giving some to God. But here's a really common question that people ask um, when it comes to like tithing. I know I want to give my 10%. I know I want to tithe, which by the way isn't necessarily even commanded in the New Testament. But, but people ask this question. So is that tithing off of like the net income after taxes? Or is that tithing off the gross? Like, which, which, which am I supposed to do? And, and what is that question signifying? That question is basically saying, what's the least I have to do for God to be happy? Like, what do I got to do? Like, what, what, what gets him kind of off my back? Because the reason I'm asking is because if I'm allowed to do the net, then that's, you know that's where I'm going. Nobody asks that question and, and with the intention of giving the, the larger amount. And, and we have this tendency a lot of times in us to ask, like, what can I do? And Jesus says, how about, how about we operate first from the heart? How about we operate first from love and not just ask, what can I get away with? But, but what does God desire? What pleases him? And when Jesus says that all the commandments are summed up in love, this would be a great reason why. The question when it comes to divorce, Jesus says, is not what am I allowed to do, but what is loving towards my God and my spouse? And this is what he throws to them. Verse 9 is the key word on this. It says, read that again. It says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is what God wants. He has joined these together. And so do not let man separate. But, but actually verse 9, you saw that word therefore in there, right? Which means verse 9, let not man separate, is actually built on verses 7 through 8. So read verses 7 through 8 again. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So the reason that what God has brought together, man should not separate, is because of this, that the design from the beginning was that at a given point, a man and woman would leave their immediate family as their primary family, as their primary community of loyalty, and they would come together and their primary loyalty and allegiance goes to that person now in such a way that they are more than two people, actually. They become one. And that is why you do not separate these things. But if you looked at verse 7, it actually starts with therefore as well, right? Which means... Verse 7 is built on verse 6. So let's read verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And this is what this is rooted in. Jesus roots his answer to this question about marriage all the way back in creation and says this, that at the start, marriage is rooted in this idea that at the beginning, God created two different but complementary types of people, two different but complementary genders, each reflecting God in their own unique ways that are designed to come together to display a fuller picture of who God is. To display a fuller picture, and Paul will go on specifically to say, a picture of Christ and His church. We also see even this picture of heaven and earth as these two different and complementary things made at the beginning in Genesis 1 and then brought together in perfect harmony at the very end in Revelation 21 with this design. So these two things are unique and separate but come together for something great. He says that is why two become one flesh and that is why you cannot simply separate something. You cannot undo what God has created with a piece of paper. Just doesn't work that way, is what Jesus says to them. This is, by the way, verse 6. In the beginning, God created them male and female. This is why Christians um, don't believe in gay marriage, because we believe that marriage is not built on two consenting adults who want to be together. Marriage is not built on two people with romantic interest or romantic love for one another. Marriage is not even built on a desire to be committed to another person, although those are important things. Marriage is built first and foremost on this. Two people with different and unique and complementary reflections of God and His character that are designed to come together to do this. One flesh. And those two genders become very important it's built on these two different and complementary um, reflections. Now, here's where it gets a little bit weird. Because as I said, we often use verse 6 rightly when it comes to um, the, the gay marriage debate. To say, no, 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 in the beginning God created them male and female. But so often we forget that Jesus first used this to talk not about gay marriage, but to talk about divorce. And that one we don't spend a whole lot of time coming after in church. That's one we don't focus on nearly as much, but that's, that's where Jesus goes with that verse. Um, and, and he has some pretty strong things to say right here. Read verses 10 through 12, Sarah. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Okay. Um, the idea, as I said again, is that you cannot simply just undo with an agreement 
with a legal document, you cannot simply undo the one flesh that God has created. So if I marry my wife and I covenant in a relationship with her and I make a promise to her and I make a promise to God and then one day I decide I'm done with this, don't think, Drew, that just because you have a document I can go away and do my own thing now. Jesus says, if I divorce my wife and then I go marry somebody else, even if this divorce is legal, I go and marry someone else, Jesus says that is adultery. What he says that I'm commanding, and this is a difficult and uncomfortable text. It's difficult because of how prevalent divorce is in the church, and and I'm guessing if we just did a show of hands in here, that that we would be probably over half uh, of you in here are connected in some way. Maybe your own parents, or or an aunt, and uncle, or a best friend. Like most of you have some connection to. Divorce have been affected in some ways by divorce. Um, I, I was about to say, I was going to say that divorce is one of the most accepted sins in the church, and, and I don't know that that's actually true. Like, we recognize it to be sin. We're probably going to get to one of the most accepted sins at the end of this text tonight. Scott will be talking about that. But I would say that divorce is, is perhaps like the most, what are you going to do, sin in the church, Right? Like we go kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's wrong, and I know we shouldn't, but I mean, what are you going to do? It just, it's just what people do today, right? And, and Jesus doesn't really say, what are you going to do? Jesus says, don't do it. He says, you, you can't do those things. You can't just undo one flesh. It's that significant. It's that important. This is also, by the way, why um, sex with someone that you're not married to yet, whether, um, whether it's a prostitute or a um, fiancé or a girlfriend or boyfriend, sex with someone that you're not married to is so destructive because it hijacks the very purpose of what sex and relationships were supposed to do. It is an attempt to achieve oneness in this one aspect, in the physical aspect, without having oneness in the spiritual, oneness in the legal, oneness in the financial, oneness in the social aspect, oneness in the emotional aspect. And so it hijacks that purposes and messes things up in that way. It, it really does mess a lot up. Do you, do you realize how bad it looks um, when, when we want to, as a church, stand up and say that we stand for the biblical view of marriage when we're talking about things like homosexuality? And we stand for the biblical definition of sexuality and marriage, and all the while we're ignoring the biblical definition of sexuality and marriage. Like by the way we live with our ex-wives or ex-husbands, by the way we live with our girlfriends and boyfriends, and to do those things, there is something that, um, that ought to make us a little sick to our stomach about that. Um, let me say three things real quick on this idea of divorce and marriage to kind of get into it just a little bit. And really, I'm focusing mostly on this because Scott will be on the other, so we'll, we'll move pretty quickly through the rest of the text. But um, three things. First is this. The Bible does present some exceptions to this rule about divorce, where Jesus says, if you divorce someone and marry someone else, that's adultery. There are a couple exceptions. One is in Matthew's telling of this story in Matthew 19, Jesus, Matthew records that actually Jesus goes a little bit further in detail here and he says that if you divorce your spouse for any reason other than adultery and then go marry someone else, that's adultery. So in other words, if, if my wife were to cheat on me 
and, and she has an affair, then if, if I divorce her and marry someone else, that's not adultery because she's already kind of entered into that. I will say this. I think that, again, fits more in the God allows, not what God wants. I cannot fathom how, as one who has been forgiven so much in my life, how if my wife were to cheat on me and then come back in like repentance and, and ask for forgiveness, I cannot fathom um, how I would be able to say, no, I can't forgive you for that. Sure, Jesus has forgiven me um, millions upon millions of sins, but I cannot forgive that one to you. Um, it's just the nature of what it is to be a Christian is that my whole life is built on grace and forgiveness. And so I would want to do, I think, the same for my wife. But that, that exception does seem to be in there. And particularly if there is a case in which a spouse refuses to repent, does not want to come back, or is continually kind of involved in like serial adultery, if you will, just over and over again. That seems to be there. Another one is in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says that if you are married to an unbeliever that you are to stay with that person, but if that person wants to leave and go, you can't make them stay, Paul says. And so like you're, you're okay in that situation. He says, let them go. And so um, it seems that, now that's specifically in a Christian and non-Christian type relationship, but I think that that, that applies kind of broadly to if your spouse leaves you and refuses to come back, there's really nothing you can do about it. And so it's not considered sin to divorce and, 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 and to be married to someone else. With those things in mind, we kind of get this idea that, that there maybe are some exceptions to this. Um, and, and it's difficult to feel those out. Not everybody agrees on what the exceptions are. Probably the, the major one that everyone agrees on, aside from what's mentioned is the, in the Bible, is abuse. Um, so those kind of three A's, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Um, if you are in danger or if your kids are in danger, um, then, then I, I believe that it is okay um, to step out of that marriage relationship. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. Um, like For those of you who are in a family in which this has taken place, your own parents that you love and respect and look up to, or, or for those of you, when I start talking about like sleeping with your, your girlfriend and, and, and you start thinking back to some past mistakes you make and there's just like a deep pit in your stomach um, with regret and shame and all those things, uh, I, I want to make sure that we always come back to this, that there is, no, there is no sin so dark and there is no place so deep that God and His grace and love cannot come down and redeem us from that. Um, that no matter where you have been or what you have done or what specific relationships or places your parents have been, that God's grace, this is, this is Romans 5, that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace is always bigger than sin. Always overwhelms sin. God's grace does. And, and so you are able to be redeemed in that. You are able to be renewed. And so when, when divorce happens in the church, I think we do everything we can to fight against it and we push back against it. But when it happens, um, God's grace is sufficient and we have the ability to extend grace to others as they are seeking to do what is right in repentance. Third thing I'll say real briefly is this. Everything that I've said about marriage, that God created male and female, two complementary parts to come together and reflect Him properly, does not mean in any way, shape, or form that if you are single, something is wrong with you or that you do not have the ability to adequately or accurately reflect God and His character and His nature. Um, that, that the truth is, I mean, the, the one person who reflected him better than anybody, Jesus himself, 
single for 33 years, I don't know about you, seem to be doing all right. Right? Like that's, that's just my opinion. Seem to be doing okay. The other big name, obviously, is the Apostle Paul. And Paul is like, dude, dodge marriage if you can, man. Okay, so that's like his take on it in 1 Corinthians 7. Is, is He actually says, no, you can actually, that, that there's contrary to this fact that being single means you can't reflect him, right? Or you can't live the life that you're supposed to live or that you'll never be fulfilled. Paul says actually it frees you up to live even perhaps a more full kind of life in that you can, you, you are free to give yourself fully to the kingdom and to the work of God and to do those things. So if you are single now and if you are single in 10 years and if you are single in 30 years, you still have just as much opportunity to live a joy-filled, um, Christ-honoring uh, life. And, and so do not think for a second, I, I really do believe, it's designed for male and female to come together, but I do believe that single people in a church full of male and females also do that, that the church um, can do that as single people or as couples, and I think that's really important for us to catch. All right, let's breeze through the rest of this real quick. Verses 13 through 16, Sarah. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. All right. So we saw a similar scene to this in chapter 9 when we were kind of wrapping up last semester. And if you remember that, that's where Jesus tells the disciples that they need to, that, that to be great in the kingdom, you need to receive a child like this. And, and what we're talking about there, and this is important, when, when Jesus says you need to receive the kingdom like a child, we usually kind of think like in like an innocence and in like a carefree way and in like a um, super trusting, that element might be there a little bit, um, but really like in, in the first century, the view of kid was like um, someone that, that needs to stay out of the way. Um, no status, no, nothing that they can do to commend themselves. Like there's no reason, there's nothing within these kids that they should command any sort of audience with Jesus, which is why the disciples are quick to say, get them out of here. It was understood that kids stay out of the way of important people. And, and so when Jesus says childlike, that you accept it like a child, he's not talking about like innocence and he's not talking about a faith that doesn't think, it just kind of believes. He's talking about being willing to recognize that you are not entitled to anything. He is talking about being able to lower yourself and recognize there is no status that qualifies you for the kingdom. You receive it as sheer gift. Nothing that, nothing that is owed to you, just like there was nothing that was owed to a kid. Kids did not have rights in first century um, Palestine around that time. So that's really kind of key to, to catch on to as we move into some of our next stuff here. Now we go to our final story. Start us off in verse 17, Sarah, 17 through 20. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. 
You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. All right, so you have this young man, and he runs up to Jesus, and out of deference to him, he falls down on his knees, bows before him, and, and this is obviously a guy who has been striving and, and, and struggling to figure out what is right and how he can attain to eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus thinking he probably has the answer. It says, what do I got to do, good teacher? And verse 18 is a really weird one, and scholars have struggled with what to do with that for a while, where Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Of course, our belief is that Jesus fits in that category of good and God alone, right? And so this is like a weird statement. What's going on there? There are a couple different theories on this. One is that um, Jesus is basically about to set him up for this, this boom that he's about to lower on him, right? To say, let's, 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 let's be careful throwing the word good around as though that can just apply to anybody. Good young man. Right. Um, the second thing that, that could be possible is, is that Jesus is actually hinting at his identity there. Uh, that's interesting. Like we, we know that God is the only one who is truly good. So what is it that, that you're seeing in me that makes you call me good? I wonder if you're catching something there. Like That could be a possibility. There's, there's another strong possibility. Jesus' pattern is his main goal while he's on earth, he says over and over again, is to bring glory to the Father. And so it could be that he's simply just kind of stepping our way and say, make sure you don't miss where, where goodness comes from, the Father as it flows through me in those things. So that could be taking place. So he says, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus starts listing off some common examples from the Ten Commandments, basically saying, keep the law. And the guy says, nailed it. Got that taken care of. No problems, Jesus. Next, right? And, and this is what Jesus says to him in verses 21 through 25. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, man's at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's it. That's good. This is a really... Wait, wait. Did you go to 24? Yeah, 24. Read 25 real quick. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. All right. There you go. Really interesting thing here. This is, by the way, a really difficult passage. Again, another uncomfortable one for a lot of people. This is a really interesting thing that Mark says. And in, in the retelling of the story, Matthew tells this story, Mark tells this story, Luke tells this story. Only Mark adds this detail. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. How does Mark know that? Like what, first of all, is there something like, was it something in Jesus' eyes that he was able to like see the love in him? And second, remember Mark's probably not there. This is through Peter, so maybe Peter saw it. I mean, we don't know. It says Jesus looked at him and left, and there's some who actually theorize that this rich young man is Mark. We know that Mark's family was actually pretty well off, um, that his, his family's house was big enough for the church to meet at when they first started. And, and some people just think, and it really is a guess, we have no idea, but, but for Mark to know this detail, that, that Mark seems to have known something in Jesus' eyes, that maybe it was him himself. Catch this also in verse 24. What does Jesus call his disciples? Children. That's interesting. It's the only time in all the Gospels that he ever calls his disciples children. 
Very interesting, and, and there's got to be a reason for that. Think about that. What could that reason be? Um, people have struggled with this statement, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person in the kingdom of God for a long time. And a lot of people have tried to find a lot of alternative answers to what that could mean, but it seems to mean what it means, that it's impossible for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. That sounds harsh. And why is that? Scott's going to touch on that and actually spend most of our time exploring that here in just a second. Read the last few verses, 26 through 31, for us, Sarah. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home, or brothers or sisters, or mother or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, real quick, wrapping up. 29 and 30 are really crazy. Um, because we expect Jesus to say, if you give up homes and fields and moms and dads and kids and family, you will receive a hundred times back in heaven. But that's not what he says, is it? You will receive a hundred times back in this life. What does he mean by that? Not health and wealth, I don't think. Um, what he means by that, actually, he says you're going to get moms. You're going to get sisters and brothers. You're going to get homes and, and what I think he means by that is that I know what he means is the church. That whatever we might give up here, that God through his body, through his people, through his family, will give us back a hundred times over in our brothers and sisters in the church. And I think that that is a beautiful, beautiful concept. Um, let's take a break for a couple of minutes and then Scott will get up and, and take us through some of this other stuff. Okay. What? So, why, why is it so hard for a rich man, for a rich woman, for, for those who are rich, um, to enter the kingdom of heaven? Je- Jesus, in, the, in, this, in this section, he steps on some toes. He, he goes after our relationships, right? And talking about divorce, there's no wiggle room with that, by the way. Like, None. And Drew, Drew said it, did it, a great job helping us see the, like, the severity of, in, in which Jesus describes this. It's, it's, there's no wiggle room with divorce. None. We, we act like there is a lot, um, but there's none. So he, he steps on our toes when it comes to religious, or to, when it comes to um, our relationships. And now he's, he steps on our toes when it comes to money and possessions and material things. And, and Bo is having a great conversation in there <laughs> that we're all listening to. I mean, just because it's his birthday, you guys know it's Bo's birthday? Does he know we're talking about him right now? And he's still talking? Okay. I mean, it's his birthday, so I guess you get to do whatever you want. Oh, he's talking to someone from Haiti. Oh, it's, it's Luke. It's Luke. Hi, Luke. 
Anyway. Oh, wow. I just lost my connection. I'm wasting time here. Yep. It's Bo. It's his birthday. What else am I going to do? I'm scared of Bo. All right, so, so let, me, let, me, let me, I read something recently. So anyway, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go after this whole itch, issue of riches. And, and I believe Jesus has already stepped on our toes, so I'm just going to expose a little bit more of that for us. Um, so there is uh, this guy named Andrew Walls. And he's kind of a uh, renowned historian when it comes to the, like the history of Christianity and how it's moved in, from different places. And uh, I was recently watching a, a video where he taught at, at a school that I actually attended and got my master's in, but he was, he was speaking uh, to this group of people at Spring Arbor University and, and kind of describing what he's seeing and, and what he's noticing. And what's interesting is uh, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, all these major religions, they're all centered in the same area in which they started. They're all, they're all still centered where they started. So Hinduism started in, in India, and it's still centered in India. Christianity is the only one that hasn't stayed where it started. And so the question became, like, why? And, and so, as you know, it started in Jerusalem, and then it moved, uh, it moved up north and to the, to the west and kind of around the Mediterranean, thanks to our friend Paul, and then North Africa. So North Africa and the Mediterranean, right? So Ephesus and Corinth and all these places. Um, this is where the church, like after the first century, it moved to this area and became kind of, uh, that's where it was centered. It moved out of Jerusalem into this area. And then, and then from there, it kind of gra- uh, gradually moved up north towards Europe and especially Rome. So by the, by the 300s, a guy named Constantine comes in and says, Rome is a Christian nation, which, you know, if, if you know, someone had been around 100 years before that, would have, it would have been like, the devil is saved? What? I mean, that's how, because Rome was killing Christians, I mean, for a sport. They would put them in an arena and have lions attack them, and it was like, it was like entertainment. And so this kind of, this shift of, of, of uh, the center of cult, culture, Christian, Christianity, all of a sudden now is in Europe and Italy and, and spreading further and further west. And so um, it goes into Europe and eventually to North America. And what he points out is at the beginning of the 20th century, 80% of the Christians lived in Europe or North America. 80% of the Christians in the world lived in Europe or North America at the beginning of the 1900s. At the beginning of 2000, um, he says, he says uh, more than half, he says well over half, lived in Africa, Asia, or the Pacific region. So the shift has already begun. And he says every year that increases. Every year, less and less people uh, from North America and Europe are Christians, and more and more people in these especially southern hemisphere areas. Now, why is it moving? 
why is why does it move? Why does it not stay in one area? And what he attributes it to is wealth and power. It's like the moment that see when, when Christianity was birthed, they were they weren't even at the table when, of political power or any sort of influence. They were like eating the breadcrumbs that the servants dropped. I mean, that's that's what Christians were viewed as. Jews had, you know, the the um, Hellenist uh, culture. Christians weren't even at the table. By the 300s, they weren't just at the table. They were in charge of the table. And then we have some brutal periods in church history where Christianity was in power and had wealth and began to do lots of things. And we think things like this. We, we think weird things. Oh, if we could just get that really, really, really famous athlete. Like if he became a Christian. Oh, just think. Just think. I mean, just think what, what you know, would happen. All these, if, if, only, if only we got this really strong Christian in power, you know, as the president. Somebody with a lot of wealth and experience. Somebody like, you know, Donald Trump. Somebody that's really <laughs> just a lot of, you know, he's, he's a Christian. He quotes the Bible once in a while. So that's good. He's got that part down. And he's got lots of wealth. And he's certainly not afraid to throw around his power. Boy, just think what we could do if, if we had a Christian leader. And, and if you look throughout church history, like whenever that happens, it's, it's already on the way down. And, and I, think, I think part of the reason is, is found in like the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. He, he's, he's going after something that we don't like. And, and we have to be, the reason why we, I don't know if you were around this past fall at, at Sunnybrook, we did this winter series and it was kind of, it was kind of, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say dark. I would say it was more just sobering. This realization that, yeah, I mean, we, we weren't, we've not been a Christian nation for a long time. That's, that's moved. It's, it's gone. There are, there are countries sending missionaries to America now. Um, and, and, you know, a hundred years ago that was, crazy to think about and so that the, the things have shifted and and it this this begins to really what jesus goes after with this guy really begins to to um to do some things to us so there's a guy named anthony and i wish anthony were here because i'm sure i would get a, an amen from him but um <laughs> there's a guy named anthony he, he was born in 251 a.d in egypt he was born actually during the time when, when Christianity had shifted up to North Africa and the Mediterranean area. Um, he was born kind of in that culture. He was born to two Christian parents and who are wealthy landowners. And uh, when he was either 18, between 18 and 20, his parents died. And uh, he was left in, to inherit everything. And he also uh, had to take care of his younger sister. So one day on the way to church, uh, he was on his way to church. He had his sister with him, and he started thinking about the apostles and how they gave up everything to follow Jesus and, and to sacrifice their life for the kingdom and for the, to, to spread the gospel. And he just was kind of, he, as, as it's written about him, that was a very significant like conversation that he had with the Lord on the way to church. He walks into church, and the minister gets up and preaches a sermon based off of this story. I'm not sure which text it was, either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Um, 
but it was on this rich young man. And he is struck. He thinks God started preparing his heart on the way there, and he is struck by these words Jesus says, Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and follow me. And he realizes, I can't do this in this culture. Because the culture was, was affluent, it was, you know, there were so many, it was consumeristic, there was, there was a lot going on, there were so many distractions from, from him following Jesus that he said, I don't, I don't think I can do this. So he left there and decided he was going to go sell everything. And he sold just enough to where he could give most of it away, but had enough to take care of his sister. He did that for a week. Comes back to the very next Sunday. Here's a sermon preached from Matthew 6. It says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And he realizes that's the only thing stopping him from giving the rest of his stuff away, and even his sister. And so he leaves there and goes and finds a convent um, to raise his sister, drops her off there, gives away the rest of his stuff, walks off into the desert and spends the next 15 years alone. Like, nobody knew this guy. Nobody knew he existed. Nobody knew what he was doing. He just decided, I can't live for the Lord around this, this kind of affluence, and so I'm going to, i got to go where I'm going to be uncomfortable, where I'm going to need to rely on him, where I'm going to recognize my need for him. So he does. He goes out, and it's 15 years or so, and then he comes back, and he starts preaching, and he has a powerful, very dynamic ministry, preaching and healing, and he does that for a little while, and then he goes right back in the desert for another decade or two. I mean, it's just, so by then people start knowing who this guy is, and they start coming out to see him and to hear from him, and, and, um, and preaching and healing, and he, he, he kind of goes back and forth. He'll spend a couple decades, he, I think he spent a total of 40-some years in the wilderness, and then in the meantime going back and forth. Lived to be 105 years old. Um, you can read about it. There's a guy named Athanasius who, who wrote about him. And his name is, um, he has several names actually. Abba Anthony or Anthony the Great or Anthony of, of Egypt. Or, um, but he was known, he was come to be known as like the, the father of the monastic way of life. Okay, monks, right? The, the hermit way of life, the going out and living. And so he started this movement. And so the, the, have you ever, ever, ever heard of the Desert Fathers and Mothers? He was like the first, one of the originals. I mean, there, there were others around that similar time that were starting to do the same thing. But it, it, this was his reaction to the kind of affluence that was taking place. And, and what do you do? How do you live this life that Jesus called us to around so much abundance and so much influence? And that's what he chose to do. There's another guy named Saul. Um, he was, he was not a man of super wealth, but definitely a man that had power and super, certainly a man that had conviction. He was a Pharisee, comes to Christ on this road to Damascus, becomes one of the greatest church missionaries the world has ever known, gives it all away, sacrifices his life, risks his life day in and day out to spread the gospel into synagogues, into hostile environments, um, into new territories. And this is what he writes. Uh, for, turn to 1 Timothy 6. Uh, it's going to be on the screen, but I, I would love for you to have this because there's several. Ver- there's a couple verses in here that are worth underlining and, and having available. 1 Timothy 6.
Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, who's a young man going into the ministry, and Paul's kind of his spiritual father, and he's writing to him to encourage him, to, to kind of challenge him. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's, that's probably a line worth underlining. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice he says, a love of money and not money. It is, it is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is the testimony who, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This commandment he's talking about to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus. He's saying keep it unstained and free. Free from what? Well, in the context both before and after this, that little line is riches. Verse 15. Now he's, now he's going to go off on Jesus because he does that a lot. He just goes off and then he'll come back. Which he will display at the proper time. Who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is, has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's talking about Jesus. No one's ever seen or can see. He's describing his, this, like, you, don't, you haven't really seen Jesus yet. Um, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay, so he goes off and then comes back. Verse, sorry, I forget, I forget to keep going. Where are we at? Sorry, 17. I just got busy reading and I forgot to, hope you had your Bibles open. Um, this is the last section. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but only, sorry, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I love that, to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly Life, as opposed to seeking riches and lavishing on abundance in material things, is not truly life. But these other things, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, as the true as a true way of living. So Paul doesn't hold anything back with this. I mean, Jesus doesn't hold anything back. This is something we have to deal with. This is what Drew was describing may be the most overlooked sin in, in our culture because this is um, the norm. So then the question becomes, well, who's rich? 
Am I rich? Are you rich? Who's rich? Now, I don't think this completely answers the question, but I think this, this, is, this, this does a pretty decent job. So, so give me, you guys probably know this, what is, um, what is a conservative salary that a, an OSU graduate would leave here and, and get? What's a conservative, conservative salary? 35? 45? 45? 35. 40, I think 45. 55. You say 55? No. I'm going to say 35, okay? 35. Okay. So the next, the next, as soon as I click on this, it's going to tell us um, what percentage you are in terms of the richest person in the world, according to your income, like, like how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. Ready? $35,000 a year as a 22-year-old. You are the top 81% of... Point, sorry, yeah, the top 0.8, top 0.8, not, not the top 1%, the top point. Eight one percent in the world. Um, this is you. Yeah. So so so. Yeah. It doesn't. Uh, here. Let me let me refresh this. Let me sh show you what happens. There, I just wanted to see that part. All right. Um, so that's you up there in the top 0.81% of the world as a 22-year-old. Um, in one hour, you make approximately 18.23 an hour. Um, an average laborer in Zimbabwe makes 53 cents an hour. Um, you earn $35,000 a year in a year. Uh, it would take the average laborer in Zimbabwe 34 years to earn the same amount. Um, it, let's see, how, what does it say? Oh, it takes you a min two minutes, roughly two minutes, to earn enough money to buy a Coke. And it would take a, an average laborer in Indonesia um, two hours to, to make enough money to buy a Coke. Not sure why that's relevant. Um, uh, with your salary, you could pay for 152 doctors in, in uh, somebody pronounce that for me, Kyrgyzstan? Yep. 152 doctors. So I, I know this isn't, this isn't, a, this isn't completely, um, you know, accurate. But it's pretty, it's pretty amazing when you, when you stop and think about. And, and so why do we want more? You know, we need more. Do we? So why is it so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Let me see if we can tackle this a little bit. Here's, here's the line I, I want you to remember. Those who are ruled by money cannot be ruled by God. And it's pretty simple. 
And this seems to be a big deal to God. Like he seems to want to be in charge. He seems to want to say, hey, all these things that you have and this, this, these, these gifts and abilities that you've been given, um, the resources to go to college, to make an education, to, to get a job, all that stuff that you have, you know, you, you didn't get to pick where you were born, who you, and, you know, all that stuff. You know, God gets to choose all that because He's sovereign and in control. He says, all that stuff that I give you that, you often, that we often take for granted, He says, you know, I think I'd like to be in charge of that because I have amazing, amazing plans for that. And, and so that's kind of why He wants to be in charge. And so when, when we let money or, or a desire to make a certain amount or to have certain things, when we let that rule us, then lots of things happen, but big, the biggest thing happens is we don't let God rule us. Those who are rich are blinded from seeing their desperate need. Um, that would be all of us, I think, because if, if I need something, I go to Walmart to get it. And if, I don't go, if, and if Walmart's closed, which only happens twice a year, by the way, um, then I can go to like 15 other places in a 10-mile in a radius and get something I need. So, what do I need? How do I need God? This is something we have to be intentional about as followers of Jesus. To recognize our need for a Savior. To recognize that just because we can get anything we want in this city, and and Stillwater is not huge, but we can get anything we really need and way more than we really need in this city. And And we have to be reminded that God's our ultimate need. Um... Those who seek riches have no room in their heart or their calendar to seek God or, or His eternal things. And followers of Jesus, um, that's not how we're called to live. Those who are rich are deceived into believing that everything has a price and can be bought. And that's just not true. So, um, anybody hear about this Powerball thing this week? Anybody? Um, my wife and I were joking back and forth. She wanted me to, hey, if you're going to be out and about, buy a lottery ticket. You know, it's only $1.5 billion. And then she says, well, after taxes, it's only around $500 million. You know, so $500 million. What would you do with that? Um, so, yes. Uh, you, you could retire a lot. You, you could retire. Yeah. So think about, think about what money, so most of you, this is, what, this is what I believe, I genuinely believe about most of you. Most of you would want to do good things with that money. I, I genuinely believe that. I think most of us would be deceived in thinking that it wouldn't consume our life. But, but most, of, most of us would, would want to do something good with that. But, but think about this. What can, what can money fix in this world that God, can, that God cannot and so I know that's a, that's a complicated question because if God gives you resources, then He wants you to use those resources, and that's all part of His plan. So I get that. But what can, what can money fix? So if someone's, like, to meet a real need, to, to give food to somebody who's starving, that, 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 that meets their immediate need. That doesn't meet their ultimate need. How, how does their ultimate need met by feeding someone who's hungry? And ultimately is, well, we, we would hope that the person feeding them gets to share that the reason they're doing that is because Jesus gives, gave them a love for all people, that, that all people are creating God's image. 
and that all people have rights to, to eat and to, to live. And, and so because of God's love for us and because of God's love in that person, they want to offer this. And they want that person to ultimately see that I don't want you to see me giving it. I want you to see that God is taking care of you through me. It's not me. I want you to see God. That would be best case scenario, right? And then that person gets to decide, do I want to follow this God? And now a lot of times because they realize, wow, that's, your God is awesome. I like a God who's generous. I like a God who meets needs. But there's also this thing that, um, called like when helping hurts. Like when, when, when we, you know, we just meet somebody's need and they go, sweet, I don't have to do anything now. I got all these people that will meet my needs. Why do I need God when I have all these people that are going to meet my needs? See, the heart, the human heart is so deceptive. What can money actually, how can money fix a human heart? And Jesus is saying, he's hinting at, he's getting it. He doesn't say it exactly, but he's getting it. Listen, when something controls your heart, there's no room for God in it. So in, in that sense, money doesn't help us. Um, those who are rich enjoy the power that money affords them. And, and uh, you know, any power that, that God's given us is because He wants us to use it for His glory, to point people to Him, and, and, and ultimately it's to make a difference in, in eternity. Um, let me read this. It, this is the wisdom of God, right? God's wisdom is, is sometimes beyond us. He's, and so this is one of my favorite sections to re, be reminded of God's wisdom. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of God, uh, riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his, his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might, might be repaid? Like, this is the God, the creator who knows our hearts. I mean, what can we actually give back to Him that we would... I mean, we've got to trust. We've got to trust the Lord. Okay, last illustration. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take everything out of your pockets um, and, and also jewelry. And I want you to hold it in your hand. Just hold it in your hands. Okay, so if you have necklaces or watches or rings or... Uh, we're not going to pass it in. Your neighbor's not going to steal it. I don't think. Yeah, this is the offering. So, oh, where's my wallet? Oh, it's right here. All right. So, you got stuff on your arms. You got keys. You got phones. You've got, you know, stuff. Some of you brought more than others. So here's what I want you to think about. Okay, this, this is just, if you were to leave here tonight and all of these things, you were robbed and all these things were taken. Okay, you, so you lost all this stuff. So you have no car, no phone, no wallet. You have no jewelry, you have no nothing. It's all just been taken. Now you would be emotionally scarred from that moment. I'm sure that would be traumatic for you. But here's what I guarantee. I guarantee tonight someone would come to your rescue. I guarantee you, you would have someone to call for help to replenish those things. I guarantee you, 
you'd be able to eat tomorrow, like you're going to be fine. You're totally going to be fine. And, and it's just, I think it's important for us to, like, once in a while, remove all the material things that, that we think somehow help us in our life and, and, really, and really view them from, from God's perspective and go, okay, naked you came into this world, naked you're going to stand before God, and none of this stuff is going to matter. Like, none of this stuff's going to help you. None of this stuff is going to... In a hundred years from now, the most important thing that's going to matter to you is what you did with Jesus, what you believed about Jesus, and how that belief impacted the way you lived. Like, in a hundred years from now, okay, most of you, all of us will be dead. I'll certainly be dead. Um, A couple years ahead of you. But the only thing that will matter... Okay, that's, that's, that's if some of you live to be 120, which is possible. Um, but in 100 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is what you believed about Jesus and if that belief impacted the way you lived. And, and so, you know, going to college doesn't matter except that this is where God has you. And so because God has you here, it does matter. You know, getting great grades doesn't necessarily matter, but... But what does matter is how you represent Christ in your class and to your teachers. And if you're learning the things that God's wanting you to learn, to, to be able to do the things that God's calling you to do. Getting a job, a, a specific job, doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is, did you seek God about that kind of job? Did, are you seeking Him to, to do the things that He's called you to do? I mean, those things matter, right? Jesus' invitation, this is what I love. Jesus challenges this guy, but he also invites him to follow him. He's not just like, giving him a harsh word and good, saying good luck. He's saying, no, go sell all your possessions. Yeah, that's going to be really hard for you. Jesus' challenge and invitation to this man is the same challenge and invitation he gives to us. He's going to ask us to surrender what we care about most to him. He's going to ask us um, to give up what hinders us most and, and what we idolize most. And He's going to ask us to die to ourselves. But He's going to ask us to follow Him. He's going to invite us to be in relationship and to follow Him. And, and there's no comparison to what you would give up toward what you, compared to what you would gain in following Jesus. So I want to pray. God, this stuff that um, we have, that we can get easily consumed by. Help us to see, God, your perspective on it. Help us to, to understand um, that this stuff means nothing. It's going to end up in a garbage pile sometime, someday soon. It's going to be nothing to us. Help us not to be consumed by things that mean nothing. But God, I pray that you give us your spirit, that you would fill us with your truth, and that we would seek you with our life um, to, uh, God, just to see the adventure you have for us, but more importantly, to see your, um, your name and your fame spread across this world. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Um, If you would like to talk to me about how I wrestle with this, I'd love to talk to you because I wrestle. And I could have spent half of my time talking about 
how I wrestle with this um, because it's a struggle. Uh, we have food. Apparently, it's going to be good, whatever it is. Bo's been, Bo's been talking it up the whole night. So, hang out, eat. If you haven't paid for the retreat, you can come up and do that now.